Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Well, we simply know you as our prima prima donna, Catherine. Um, I like the fact, I like as, a, as an effort to epitaph to bear in mind for the future, she's very reasonable. It's possibly one <laughs> we, we should keep away in storage. Which is actually not true because sometimes <laughs> Catherine can be vastly unreasonable. Welcome to The World As It Should Be, a podcast in which we ask our guests to tell us what they would change to help create their perfect world. By listening to what they'd like to change, we'll hear more about who they are, what they do and what inspires them. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind Prima Donna, a uniquely anarchic and joyous festival of everything creative. My name is Shona Abianka and I'm a book publicist working with some of the most thought-provoking authors writing today. I'm Catherine Riley, a writer and director of the festival. We're delighted to be your guides on this podcast adventure. The world as it should be from Prima Donna. Catherine Mayer is a best-selling author, journalist and activist. She is the co-founder and president of the Women's Equality Party and co-founder of Prima Donna. Her most recent book is a memoir, Good Grief, Embracing Life at a Time of Death, which also contains letters written by Catherine's mother after she, like Catherine, was widowed at the start of the pandemic. Catherine's husband was the musician Andy Gill, founder member of the band Gang of Four. After Andy's death, Catherine took on his unfinished project, releasing two EPs by Gang of Four and acting as executive producer for a tribute album, The Problem of Leisure, a celebration of Andy Gill and Gang of Four, featuring globally famous musicians. Catherine doesn't sit still, ever. Catherine, welcome to the show. I was going to say that... The, the listeners won't know that you're actually drinking as you say that. <laughs> um, this is less a podcast than a drinking game because I've got a Timothy Taylor's with me. Oh, I have, I've got a water. This is very disappointing. Pro. Always the pro. <laughs> um, so we thought we'd open by talking about why we know you um, and each other. So obviously, the obvious link is the Prima Donna Festival, which is looming. Um, Catherine, do you want to tell us why you set this this thing up <laughs> which is <laughs> it's so obsessed us all for the last two years and I what think, we're most looking forward to about it well yeah I mean I'm laughing at you using the word looming yeah well, I'm, it's not looming con- on I'm, me. I'm not convinced that one looks forward to something that's looming <laughs> whereas whereas for me prima donna festival is this bright shining light at the end of a very bloody long tunnel yeah. you know we've mm. all had in different ways um, very difficult 18 months um, it, and prima donna the thought of prima donna has been sustaining me mm. and so I mean how it started the, the festival is um, one of those things like many of the best things in life that started by accident uh, I um have a friend who you now both know very well as well, Jane Dybel, the magnificent. Magnificent. Um, And uh, I was staying at her very nice um, house in Suffolk um, with uh, my husband, Andy, and her partner, Andy, who are very old friends because they um, have known each other for years and were both in bands. Um, My Andy was in Gang of Four and her Andy in the Mekons. And so we were actually discussing things like the state of the music industry. And in fact, we did come up with a really brilliant business plan for a music industry venture that we thought we'd do that involved kind of sailing around the world in off season in, um, you know, doing a kind of Mekons and Gang of Four cruise for for people mad enough to, yeah, but anyway, so... A cruise ship for 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 rock stars and people. There we would have gone. Yeah, well, the, the, you wouldn't have been allowed on. A do you know, do you, do, I would do have you been know? a stowaway. <laughs> uh, quite possibly. <laughs> um, no, what I was going to say is, do you do you you, you don't know about the, these music cruises? What happens is that cruise ships. Uh, and this is, of course, I shouldn't make jokes about it, but before they got a bit of a bad name in the pandemic, um, they didn't know what to do with their off seasons because they they really were only working in the, the temperate times of year, depending where they were stationed. 
and then somebody got the idea that you could do these kind of themed cruises so there are all these weird cruises in the world like a slipknot cruise and you know sort of heavy metal cruises um people will pay to be with their heavy metal idols and we thought well actually why would this not also be true of post-punk so anyway the point is we were discussing this as a business proposition jane was uh suddenly talked about the fact that they did little festivals at their place in Suffolk and she asked me if there was room for another spoken word festival and I shouted yes and started kind of planning what was going to become prima donna within 30 seconds of her saying that because as an author um, I had long understood that when you go to literary festivals a lot of them are very nice but you're very often on the same circuit with the same rather small group of authors and appearing in front of the same audiences and it was a festivals are an extension of a problem that afflicts the whole of publishing and many other aspects of the creative industries which is that Um, only a small number of people get a platform, only a small number of people can afford to participate, are able to participate. And it means that things aren't as interesting and vibrant as they could be and that talents that could come through don't and all of that. So, and and there's a, a particular problem with women. I mean, I'd noticed that it was the same bunch of women that I would always see at these things. And we're mostly, I have to say, white and middle class. And so we started talking about it, at which point I sent an email to both of you mm-hmm. and to a bunch of other people, including Kit Duval, um, and um, uh, because I knew she'd done the Common People um, platform to look at getting um, working class writers published and and in front of audiences. And also, for example, Sabina Akhtar, who at that point was uh, crowdfunding the book that has now been published, um, cut from the same cloth, um, which is writing by hijabi women. And I just thought it was really interesting to see what we could come up with. So... um, we had this meeting and and thought that it would be really fun to do a festival. And there, sorry, I know I'm going on and not letting the two of you say anything, <laughs> but I'm about to finish. But I was going to say again that listener, list, listeners, listeners, <laughs> listeners can't see your faces. But the reason I'm laughing is the idea of it would be really fun to put on a festival. Um, <laughs> So that's what that's exactly why I was going to interrupt you to say, Shona, when you mm. got that email, mm. when I got that email, I thought, no, the last time I worked with Catherine Mayer, I swore <laughs> I'd never work with her again because she used to wake me up at <laughs> six in the morning and I would, I would have fallen asleep with my phone in my hand from the conversation we'd have had the night before. And then I would literally open my eyes and re- recommence whatever conversation we had ended at midnight the night before. So um, obviously I was furious when I got that email. How did you feel? So... Yeah, the first in the first reaction was fear. Then it was kind of acceptance. Mm, acceptance. <laughs> then it was, you know, um, resignation. And then now we just can't get out. So I think that's yeah. what it's like when you work with Catherine, isn't it? Entrapment. Yeah. It's like you're you're describing knowing me as being like the stages of grief. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good grief, though. I think we all really enjoyed in. 2019 working on the first festival and if the two of you are honest about it the fear really only set in at the point where we were on the point of doing it and then we kind of like oh my god what have we done and and is anyone going to turn up and is it going to be any good and also like are we going to lose people because there Mm. was the whole logistics of getting people there Oh, you mean and, actually lose, physically lose people? Yeah, well, we I did. thought you meant lose hearts and minds. You no, meant no, no. lose people in Suffolk. No, I meant losing people in mm. Suffolk. Um, and the thing is, the things we were scared of, we were right to be scared of. Mm. And yet, from the moment it started, there was the most magical atmosphere. And 
it was bathed in sunlight, which obviously helped, but mm. it was also bathed in a kind of metaphorical sunlight. I have mm. never been somewhere where there was more enjoyment, more engagement. People were already feeling that the that their lives were being changed by being mm. there. People were saying that while they were there. Lots of people said it after the festival, and there were obviously quite a lot of tangible ways in which lives were changed. A lot of aspiring writers who got a push to their writing, some of them to the extent of getting their first publishing um, contracts and, and uh, or writing gigs. But also, I don't know, it was just... Um, mm. People were yeah. wandering around going, we can't believe that we're here. Mm. This is paradise. Mm. This is the yeah. world as it should be, dare yeah. I say. And it was also quite raw. We weren't pretending that we knew exactly what we were doing. It was all very honest. And there was, you know, some of us were sort of running around solving problems that come up or, you know, chairing panels that we didn't know we were going to be chairing. And <laughs> it was all very, I, I liked, you know, it was all very collaborative and everyone there was out to help each other. So and if something went wrong, we just sorted it out. And I think that was really reflected in the people that came as well. They, there was a real kind of equality to it. And mm. the inclusive element we wanted was so apparent when we were there, I think. And I think the thing that we are, uh, that we're, we're kind of missing in this, is the con- in this conversation is just how much fun it was. You know, yeah. the, 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 <laughs> the people that were on stage um, were having as much fun as the people that were watching mm. the people on stage. And I was looking, I was looking at this year's lineup um, obsessively because that's what I do every day and just just as a snapshot of people's faces you know I'm so excited about bringing such a diverse group of people together to just have really interesting conversations that's like a space that it's not it's not commonplace and um and that rarity makes it really special there was also um a lot of the participants were talking about how exciting it was to be there to discuss ideas and things they were passionate about rather than being there as ciphers mm-hmm. so so one of the problems with things where they set out to be and I and you know but I'm going to do horrible air quote marks here diverse um, is that the people who are brought in to represent diversity are then forced to talk about the mm-hmm. ways in which they represent diversity and that's really bloody <clears throat> tedious for them and for everyone yeah. else mm-hmm. and that's not what it should be at all I have um I took a little video backstage and we had that fantastic rapper who mm. happens to be a deaf rapper who, who raps as Sign Kid. And Sign Kid was rapping and dancing started backstage, inevitably led by Shola Moshogbamimu, <laughs> who's one of our co-founders, who will any excuse to dance, she will take. Um and um she led us in the dancing, but it was her and if it it was uh, authors Elif Shafak, it was Louise Doughty, it was Winnie Lee who was really pregnant at the time and it was just like it's so funny. Mm. It was hilarious. Yeah Yeah, it was hilarious. That is a hilarious and very joyful video. My topics there are so many brilliant names that are coming on board this year. We've got uh, Grace Dent. I'm looking forward to hearing from Ajoa Ando who is a acclaimed actress but most recently known for playing Lady Danbury in Bridgerton we have some brilliant debut authors including Melody Razak who's written Moth and uh, Florence Olajide her amazing memoir Coconut about being born in the UK and then taken back to Nigeria as a little girl um, basically just to um, live there and without any warning and how she you know coped with the displacement and we are having a panel on borders and belonging um Emma Dabbery and Nikesh Shukla are going to be in conversation, which is going to be really powerful. And Elle McNichol, amazing, who's just won the Waterstones Children's Book Award for her book, A Kind of Spark. So there's such a big range and I couldn't put, you know, we haven't got time to go through them all now, but I think it's going to be really special. I'm really, I mean, I'm always really excited about everything. And then um, my experience of the first year was that everything I was excited about was was um, mm. programmed at a time when you had me doing something else but <laughs> yes, we've made um, sure to do that this year as well <laughs> no but the the thing in particular that I missed that um, but then got to see because we did it but in the virtual festival is make Seanad laugh mm. 
Mm. I bloody love the comedy showcase that we do, which is like anyone can have a go. Three minutes making Seanad. And Seanad is another one of the sister prima donnas um, who is uh, Seanad William, who's the the commissioning editor for comedy for Radio 4. Um, You can make her laugh. And if you make her laugh, you get a bar of chocolate. Um, But if if you yeah sorry very specifically mm. a funny bar of chocolate curly <laughs> could have been a um, finger of fudge that would have been funnier it would still be funnier <laughs> we could change it this year Maybe or have you... fuck it i'm the festival director this is the kind of shit i can do i don't like fudge can we stick to the curly whirly <laughs> are, are you competing <laughs> um, well not. you know that i'd win so i don't think it's very fair <laughs> um one of the people who who competed in it before has now got a full-time writing gig on yeah. channel four yeah. com- doing comedy so brilliant and um you know well, i always get excited by the young writers you know the prima donna prize uh mm. short shortlisted authors who appeared um who've appeared in the past who will you know they are they're the future of writing it's mm. so exciting um, mm. But I also just like the really silly stuff. Am I allowed to talk about marrying ourselves? Yes, please do. I mean, there's a on the we we have this wonderful new home at this extraordinary um, museum of East Anglian life, which is a sort of stately home in mm. amazing rolling so ground. Beautiful, isn't it? It's so beautiful. But there's a chapel, mm-hmm. so it would be such a waste of the chapel if we were not allowed in this chapel to enable people to marry themselves because let's face it what better life partner are you going to find you know and I've of course been very tempted to do this because I the tastelessness of me doing it as a new widow <laughs> shock on people's just... faces <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I can't I cannot I cannot swear that I won't at some point get drunk and marry myself. But <laughs> it's, it's, you'll it's have honest, 16 bridesmaids with all the prima donnas. Yeah, it's programmed for Sunday morning, so we'll just have to keep you up all night. <laughs> Make sure you're drunk enough. Like no, the bride I mean, of Dracula. <laughs> but, but I'm also, I am very, you know, you mentioned Adger and uh, uh, I'm also very excited about Andy Osho coming. Mm. I mean, that's that's really thrilling. Um for anyone, of course, who watched the the last line of duty, um, we were all, we all spent the whole time waiting for her to come in and have some major role, and it was the most frustrating experience of my life, really, because I love her and and she was um, would it be she a joke to dead. say is that a spoiler? No, I, w- I was going to say criminally underused. Oh hey. dear. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Shona, it's rubbing off. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, I have to also say that the surgeries we ran were really successful and great, weren't they? Because we got to meet so many different people. Well, actually, that's the one thing we should we should probably mention is that we uh, the part apart aside from the fun and and the, the mental stimulation and and the emotional engagement and all the the hug in the field stuff. Prima Donna, uh, one of its USPs is is creating platform, uh, play, creating an environment for people that want to write to be better at writing or to learn new ways of writing or to connect with people in the industry that can help them with their writing. So this year. For the first time, we've come up with a bit of a conceit, but it's with a serious purpose, which is our own creative writing master's program for people that wouldn't be able to afford the time or, or the financial commitment of one at an institution. So in, it's actually being housed, housed in the chapel. So by day, the chapel is the um, University of Prima Donna. And then uh, on Sunday, it, it miraculously transforms into a wedding chapel. <laughs> so so the, uh, yes, the, the MA will be run uh, from there as well. And Kit Duval is involved in that, isn't she? Yeah, wonderful Kit. Yeah, brilliant. And also the pay what you can scheme is really amazing. So mm-hmm. anyone with financial struggles um, or if you're furloughed or just, you know, you want to come but you just don't have the financial means, it is literally pay what you can and come and join us. See you there. Um, okay, we um, have talked enough about the festival. Shall we move on to the why we're all gathered here today which is to talk about Catherine your version of the world as it should be um we've asked you for three things you have accepted the challenge do you want to talk us through your first change well the first one um just to go straight from joyful to um sort of horribly serious is about 
accepting and planning for mortality. Um, this is something that has been obsessing me for a long time. So the first book that I wrote was called A Mortality, and uh, the subtitle was the, the Pleasures and Perils of Living Agelessly. And it was based on my observation now a long time ago that um, the world was a lot of societies were increasingly in denial about the fact that we all die. And they were also increasingly in denial about the fact that we all age and, and were treating age as something that was negotiable and as indeed death. Um, and it actually was having some positive benefits because it, is possible to think yourself old you know there's there's mm -hmm. a kind of dare i say daily mail mentality about um the the strictures of age it's a kind of old old england viewpoint for example that when a woman gets to a certain age she starts wearing crimply trousers with a with a kind of elasticated waist i and, can't wait and, yeah <laughs> i'm, <laughs> I'm wearing them now too. yeah exactly <laughs> But you know what I mean? It's a sort of age, a notion, a notion of what's age appropriate. Mm. And that can be stultifying and that can actually make people think themselves older if you, if you, you know, and, and a lot of the ideas about age are also literally out of date because we do live longer. Um, until the pandemic, we had a, a significantly increased life expectancy over the the you know that that had increased steadily and then stalled but over the the 20th century um and people were you know the the reason for example 60 was originally the retirement age is you weren't actually expected to live very long mm -hmm. after 60 so there wasn't much of your life that you thought about for them um so changing ideas of age and aging are very good but what is less helpful is the idea that um as i say that the aging and death are things that that are negotiables because they're not they come to all of us and in the pandemic we saw some of this play out in very bad ways because the the other side of that coin is the kind of ageism that treated people in care homes as expendable um, and people with underlying conditions as people who would have died anyway and weren't as worthy of of saving. And obviously, I have a very personal view of this because my husband, who I mentioned before, Andy, um, who was the founder of um, the band Gang of Four and a prominent musician, um, was he died right at the beginning of the pandemic. And my stepfather had died only a few weeks before Andy. So when the pandemic hit and then when we went into lockdown, uh, I was in new widowhood and newly having lost my stepfather of 43 years or something, um, sort of wrestling with aspects of that. And, I, and people were, including the two of you, were incredibly helpful in supporting me um but i did also see how very awkward people are at dealing with death i was also dealing with one of the side effects of people being in denial of death which was that andy had not made a will uh, a huge percentage of people in this country and in many others have not made wills they even fewer of them have made end of life plans have have um, set up kind of legal structures that would be helpful in the event of serious illness, for example. I, as you know, Andy was the love of my life, and I had to take the decision to turn off the life support machines. Um, if that had been something that we, if, if death and end of life planning had been something that was part of normal life, if it were normalized. That was the kind of decision that we would have discussed with each other and where we would have appointed, um, you know, given power of attorney to mm. other people to reach that decision with me so that I wouldn't have had to do it on my own. And, you know, that I'm giving a very personal 
perspective on this, but you saw it again and again throughout this very difficult period where people have been confronted with death, but they also um, have shied away from it. Um, that pe- that it made for worse policy. Mm. It made for worse resilience, you know, not enough resilience in the population. It made it harder for those of us who were left behind. Um, And here's the positive aspect of of this kind of engagement with death and mortality. I think the moment that you accept it, but you understand that, you know, you accept it in, in a way that it's not a morbid thing to do, that, that death is part of life. It's, mm. Uh, mm. It, it will be part of your life. You will all lose people very close to you and then eventually you'll die. It makes you value the time that you have and the people that you have. And it also, I started a hashtag trying to, trying to, talk about this publicly I talk about the lovely dead is my hashtag and it's because one of the myths I joked about you making it sound like like friendship mm. with me resembled the stages of grief well the stages of grief grief are them is is itself a, a concept that is misunderstood because it it presents grief as something that you're supposed to hit hit marks and hurry through and get rid of grief grief is love and you want to keep that love you want to keep the lovely dead as part of your life you want to talk about them possibly every day it's not a morbid thing to do it's um it's a lovely thing to do and it makes you value the people who are alive and the life that you have and the potential of that life while you have it and so in the world as it should be I would actually, you know, we talk in the Women's Equality Party, quite rightly, we campaign for sex and relationships education that's fully inclusive. I would also like to add into school curriculums um, discussions about death to kind of normalise that as part of life, not to scare children, but exactly the opposite, Um, Mm -hmm. to make it normal to discuss end of life planning, not just when you get old, but all the way through life, because there, you know, I've had lots of friends who've died young. Um, I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask you if, as part of this um, directive, you were going to, like, how would you do it? You know, how would you implement this change to 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 more openness and more planning and more acceptance? And actually, that's that was going to be one of the things I wondered if mm. you would say, and you you, you <clears throat> did. So thank you. For... <laughs> well, uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh, I as you know <laughs> uh, I talk too much um, no. uh, but 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 talking too much is sort of part of this so for me having conversations about death people are so embarrassed to talk to me even now you know they they can't quite say the word Andy mm. they kind of right. like try and avoid his name or they they start if I start kind of going, oh, that's something Andy and I used to do, they look stricken. And it's mm. like, no, that's a lovely, well, it depends what mm. it is I'm mentioning. If it's something like he and I used to fight about that, then <laughs> they're not so much. But, you know, um, <laughs> if I, um, it, the idea that there's something embarrassing about it. You know, I went, I went to this big birthday party just before lockdown and just after Andy had died. And I kind of, I admittedly, I think I was still in shock um, and I was probably really mad to go out. But when I, when I was talking to people, if I told them what had happened, you could see that they just wanted to be anywhere mm. than, than talking yeah. to me because yeah. they think, they think there's a special voice they have to put on. They think they have to be deeply serious. Mm. Yeah. Um, Do you think it's just a real fear that they'll say the wrong thing? I mean, just a real kind of lack yeah. of confidence because they're probably, I mean, I don't know, my dif- like experiences are all very different, but I think they're probably like a million questions that go through their head and they, you know, just don't know what might upset you, for example. So, 
but they do what, say the wrong thing. Yeah. What <laughs> is one of the worst? Thing. Is there anything that's particularly funny or that you can share that was just the worst thing that someone could have said to you? Um, well, there was um, a, a friend of mine, a female friend who had never been quite certain about my decision um, Andy's and my decision not to have kids and um, after Andy died she accidentally said now do you regret not having children which was quite a funny one um, <laughs> kind of strange. funny um, yeah but but um, the one that the one that sort of made me well there were so many um, <laughs> there, there, there was um, people kept whenever I finished phone calls with them they would accidentally say get well soon oh, really um, yeah, yeah that was like I think it's like a form of words that that is close enough mm. they, but they they clearly mm. think of it unintentionally as a kind of illness um mm. and um but the one that also was rather unfortunate is that um my best friend Sarah um, and my stepsister Sarah um, I had a best friend and a stepsister both called Sarah who both died within a month of each other in 2016 and um, my stepfather was called John and somebody signed a very nice letter of condolence but signed off with the phrase tell Andy to say hi to John and Sarah which I <laughs> which I what? It still makes me laugh. <laughs> I mean, it's just the such mind boggles. But you can see that how well intentioned that is. It's just, it's just sort of horrible. Very, but I was, <laughs> I was, I was sitting in lockdown, having just lost oh my, my husband, and this was like, oh, and by the way, you've lost your stepfather and your best friend too, in case you forgot. <laughs> just to remind you. <laughs> oh man. Wow. I think there is something about we ju like you say we don't talk about this stuff. You know, mm. there isn't a language that people are comfortable with. There, there isn't a form of words. There isn't a. There's not re you know beyond going to a funeral and a wake. There aren't many rituals mm. around it. And so you know we're a nation of people that need to be told what to do, aren't we? And uh, and also awkward, emotionally awkward. Yeah. I, know I mean, Shona would you? <laughs> what <laughs> what Shona is? I'm awkward. Oh God, I'm. Terribly <laughs> awkward. Um, would you, Catherine Mayer? So it's going to be so confusing talking mm, to sorry about that. two Catherines. We'll um, both answer. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> so would you say the world as it should be? Would you recommend that people say by a certain age have thought about at least making a first draft for will, for example? Yeah. Yes. Will the end of life planning? Like it's really important. Yeah. To know. To know. Um, to have other, as I say, I mean, that example I gave about having had to take the decision about turning Andy's mm. life support off, um, it's horrible having to make that decision on your own. Mm. Um, and I and I torture myself with it even now because, you know, he was probably one of the first victims of COVID in this country. Um, we turned his life support five days after he was in a coma. They're now many many stories of people who were in comas for weeks months and mm. then survived and came out of it and so I will never I will never be able to get over the fear that I turned off without, mm. I mean I didn't physically turn it off yeah. but that I agreed to his life support being withdrawn mm. prematurely and, and so had you had an end-of-life plan you mean you you may have discussed that or even and... just shared the burden of the responsibility. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the key thing. Is yeah. that I mean, it's a bit of a selfish one, but um, I've now no. for myself appointed people who have power of attorney mm. um, when I'm alive, as you know, so that if if um, I need, you know, if if decisions need to be made on my behalf, you know, Andy was not in a position to make decisions, mm. and mm. so I, as his next of kin was the one who made those decisions but you can give power of attorney you can plan for these things and mm. you can share it around so I think you should have at least two people yeah if not three people involved in in financial and medical decisions I think we so, must have missed the call Catherine about your power of attorney <laughs> oh she asked she asked me didn't she ask you Riley? <laughs> oh well um that's a really good point yeah, and I, 
I wonder whether people, you know, when you're, when you feel relatively healthy and you're relatively young, you just don't really think you're going to need to worry about mm. it for a long time. No, mm. but that's why I'm saying, mm. so the much bigger point here is that it will be a much better world. It will be the world of it should be as it should be if we normalize death again. We have medicalized it. We have shoved it behind screens. We have told ourselves fairy tales. It's just new fairy tales. I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm going to speak as an atheist here. Um, I have always understood religion as being a way of dealing with fear of death. You know, the idea of an afterlife, the idea of a purpose that is given to you in life. Um, that's that's how I see it. Uh, as religion has receded, another and other institutions that tell us how to be and how to behave have receded. We start to look for other stories and other narratives that make sense. And one of the narratives that has gained ground is is the kind of idea of ever-increasing longevity and um, the ideal so that you can turn back aging. So, you know, you see the, you know, and there are ways, there are now people who are, who look extra, extraordinarily much younger mm. than they are. And sometimes it's impressive and sometimes it's scary. Usually quite um, scary. Well, yeah. it's, it's both. Um, mm. Friends reunion I, was terrifying. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in different ways. Each yeah, of yeah, them, yeah. They, um, yeah. But anyway, um, I just think, I think if we can find ways, as some cultures do much better, to embed an awareness of mortality back into everyday life to normalize it and take away the fear so my main point is a lot of what we do is to avoid fear Mm. but it doesn't actually take away the fear at all it just makes us it makes us more uneasy in our skins it makes us try and change the way we look to try and make ourselves look younger when we don't need to Mm. to try and do all this stuff and actually, um, the when I was trying to think of a way of explaining this, the best I could come up with is those horror movies. When you see the shadow of the monster against mm. the wall, it's far more frightening than when you see the monster. Mm. And I mm. think we've I think we've built a society where there's constantly this shadow of death looking very, very scary up against the wall. Um when you sit with somebody who's dying it's very very sad but it's not scary Mm. and we shouldn't be scared thanks Catherine um that was incredibly eloquently put all throughout all of it I fully endorse this move um (laughs) (laughs) can we move on to your second uh change do you want do you want to talk us through it well um the next one is about embracing messiness and I'm not saying about never tidying up your room Okay, that's um, my first question. <laughs> and I'm not saying, um, you know, that, that uh, you know, I've just, I've been cooking all day because in my habit of saying yes to stuff and, and um, getting, and getting embroiled in ventures that make no sense at all, I've for some reason agreed to cook in a restaurant. Um, so I've been testing recipes today. Uh, and the only way that you can do that in a, in a private kitchen like mine is to clean the whole time as you go the whole time. So that's not the kind of messiness I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that nothing is clear cut in the world, that everything is nuanced, that there are no, you know, we, we live in an increasingly polarized world. We live in a world of bubbles that are um, reinforced and strengthened by social media and by other sort of dig- often data and digitally driven mechanisms and um, in a world that increasingly expects there to be yes or no answers to things that expects people to be able to divide themselves along very clear lines um, there are issues that should be eminently discussable that have become so divisive that people no longer want to go anywhere near them. Not only that, that people on different sides of those debates then 
deny the humanity of people that they disagree with. And so my plea for embracing messiness is we're all a bit, we're all a bit, um, we're all <laughs> more than a bit flawed. Um, we, we're all like on different days. Mm. Some, some, you know, you have good days and bad days. You have days where you're nice to people and days where you're not as nice mm. to people. You have days where you make sense and days where you don't. Um, I feel like in this podcast, I've had sentences that have made sense and ones that didn't. Um, <laughs> You're doing better um, than us. <laughs> I haven't had enough beer yet. Um, the, no, the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you see clearer through the bottom of the glass. No, you don't. Kids don't drink. Um, the point I'm trying to make very messily is. Um, I have now a lot of friends and a, and not just friends, but people I know and respect with whom I think I fundamentally disagree on a lot of issues. Mm. But it doesn't mean that I think that those people are beyond mm. the pale. There are I there are certain things that are beyond the pale, you know, racism being an obvious example misogyny which I try and spend my life combating um but I know I I know people who perhaps have have said or done things that would put them in those categories and yet are good good mm. people the good is such a bad word but they're people I that I that I like and mm. find interesting and their ideas that are interesting and this is not I'm not trying to dive into the stupid woke wars here which are largely constructed and the idea that people are being cancelled is also hilarious because all the people who are described as being cancelled are mostly people who then go on the today program to talk about how cancelled they are mm. so i'm not talking about that but i am talking about uh, in activist circles in feminism in um many of the 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 sorts of areas that um, in prima donna have been so wonderful to have these sort of open and far-ranging discussions. There is an increasing drive for some idea of purity that is very misplaced. Um, so and it's an idea of certainty. And that I think the main point I'm trying to get to is there is no, things are not cut and dried. Things so, move. Yeah. So we should embrace the messiness. The messiness, exactly. Do you think that, um, and I know this isn't the only point you're making, you're making a much wider point, um, but do you think that we have lost the art of debate? Um, by um, And also, do you, th so one of the people, one of the people that, uh, one of the organisations rather that's coming to uh, Prima Donna is this, uh, uh, their group, a group called Books in Schools, uh, book club, sorry, in schools. And what they do is is simply that. They have a book club, uh, uh, which is like peer-led, so older kids do a book reading with younger kids and they are taught to respectfully discuss the mm. themes of the book and to politely disagree. And um, I know that isn't the way of solving all of the problems that you're describing and the messiness that you're describing, but do you think the root, we, it comes up a lot mm. on this pod, like the rudeness of social media, you know, the aggression, the mm. microaggressions. Do you think that's something we can train ourselves back out of? Or and do you and think... train people younger. Like if we yeah. start with kids, do you think that would help? No, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> we're not here for solutions. God, I knew we were getting too worthy. <laughs> um, sorry. Um, yes. Yeah, I do. Yes, you heard it here first. <laughs> I do, but I think, but I think, I mean, you, you know, Shona just used the word worthy. And I think one of the problems with this is this is about engaging in ways, again, that are like fun and, you know, and all of this has become very life and death very mm. like you know yeah. you you have to yeah. i spend i spend a lot of my time berate, being berated on social media for not taking positions on things mm. and it's not of course that i don't take positions on things i don't take positions on social media so i think that there are some pretty straightforward things we can do like um i think um 
the books in schools thing. I mean, I love all of, I love anything that introduces people to the widest range of thinking possible. But I, I think that the idea that you can ever have useful debates on social media is one we should abandon immediately. Yeah. Mm. Um, and we have to go for um, dis- having discussions, having conversations in ways that are expansive rather than reductive. And that means in platforms, this is, again, something I love that we do at Prima Donna is like the two-hour round tables. I love that format. Uh, and I love I love stuff that where people, where, where there's, there's space to have a discussion. Mm. You know, the only thing that would improve it is if we did it on a cruise ship. <laughs> <laughs> I think some rock Prima- singers. <laughs> That's, that's, really, that's, that's really stuck with me. Do you know? Do you know what's funny? I don't think you two know this, but I did the PR for Corey Taylor when he came over. <laughs> <laughs> I think May has just poked on her beer. <laughs> I did. I did. Okay, moving on. No, no. Well, I think a prima donna cruise with or without Corey Taylor is an excellent idea. <laughs> that's twenty twenty two. He was lovely. Me. I have to say, anyway. I, I'm seriously up for a prima donna cruise. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. I get a bit seasick. <laughs> we'll throw you <laughs> overboard. Well, uh, yeah, I can hover, hover along in a dinghy or something. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, Catherine, is when you talk about uh, messiness and embracing people that have different opinions, etc. Did this is this a skill that you kind of honed and learnt because you've spent a long time as a journalist? Was it something you had to learn? Um, I'm not sure I'm that good at it myself. Um, I hope I am. Um, you are. You are, yeah. Um, I think, I mean, I'm I'm the youngest child uh, in a family, so I think there's something mm. about having siblings that you negotiate with that probably helps. But um, I... Uh, but I you must know. have had to interview people and work with people who have very different views to you. Yeah, well, it did. You're right. Okay, I mean, I'll tell you where that was very helpful. Is I also grew up in a family that was a, a classic left wing family, mm. and I believed that only the left had that all virtue resided on the left, and and I somehow thought that all people on the left were were good and nice mm. people, and then when I started covering politics. I discovered, for example, that I was just as likely to be sexually harassed by people on the left as people Mm. on the right. And that there were, um, I still, you know, I'm still politically on the left, but I discovered that the idea that um, espousing ideas that are the right ideas does not give you any kind of monopoly on on virtue and that there were people I profoundly disagreed with who I really liked. I think it wasn't just kind of covering Westminster politics. I mean, mm. I covered politics in places like Northern Ireland and you often found, you know, during the, during the time when I was covering, you know, I would talk to a lot of the paramilitaries and I'd meet mm. very, very interesting people who, you know, it wasn't that I was condoning violence it was that I understood how they got to where they were in and why they saw the world as they did Mm. and so yes you get to a point where you begin to be able to see the world through other people's eyes Um, I think for me the the funny thing is the harder thing is going away from journalism into activism Um, that's why you would never really want me as a party leader or a or somebody who who was on question time because I equivocate and in fact with question time did I ever tell you what happened with question time it was so funny so when it was when I was still at time magazine and I was Europe editor of time magazine and um, it was way ahead of the Brexit referendum but it was like when that had been announced and they wanted to have a discussion of it so they rang me and asked if I was interested on going on question time and then they said, but we'd like to hear what you think about this question. And I gave them some answer. And I was really deeply into European politics at the time. So it's probably quite a detailed answer. And at the end of this disquisition on my part, the researcher said, that's very reasonable. 
And I knew that. <laughs> and a really I, disappointed voice. <laughs> and at that point, I knew that they're they gonna were not going to. No, they were like they weren't going to ask me on. Yeah, just <laughs> re- strike her name out. She's not coming mm, on. Yeah, but but I think I think you actually need people um, to be reasonable, even if it means that that it's you know what what producers think of as boring. They try and make everything like a punch up these days. Mm. And punch ups are, you know, they're, they're actually, I think, quite dull too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. How did you, um, obviously, you and Andy must have disagreed fundamentally on a few things. Did you have to agree to disagree on quite a lot of things? Wine and beer. <laughs> True. Uh, actually, well, no, except we didn't disagree on wine and beer. Um, we agreed mm. profoundly on wine and beer. Um, but you just hard- didn't drink the wine. Uh, no, I did until uh, that's just a trick that being menopausal um, sprung on me that I sudden I suddenly got migraines if I drank mm. wine. So there are many. I mean, talk about like nasty tricks the world plays on you. Um, I, you know, I I hit menopause. The suddenly couldn't drink wine. Then the much nastier trick is that Andy dies and leaves me with a wine cellar. So mm. I'm actually trying to learn to drink wine again. Which because... is why me and Catherine are coming over more regularly. <laughs> <laughs> but also, but also, you know, I mean, the other thing that, you know, talking about nasty tricks and agreeing and disagreeing with Andy, that we were together for nearly 30 years. Mm. And he, a lot of that time, was trying to persuade me to get involved in the music industry in a more direct way. Um, and well, in what way? Well, backing singer, singing, miraculous. You think? I mean, you you joke, but actually, there, I'm not I am, joking. There are the lots Maracas. of there. There are quite a few Gang of Four albums where you'll find I have credits either for really? for lyrics or or vocals. Amazing. Or um, uh, there's also a video where, rather embarrassingly, I'm in the bathtub. But um, that's, how many videos that's... like that did you make? <laughs> When I one time when I was at Time magazine, somebody got really like was sort of thought they'd discovered this really dark secret about me. And they and they started kind of like going, you know, we know. And I was like, <laughs> what are you what are you talking about? And it wasn't actually the video, it was that um it was the lyrics to a particular song that are a bit raunchy that I had done the but it's not it's raunchy, it's in because it's gang of four it's actually about the commodification of sex so i'm being right. a sex telephone line and they found this thing of me being like this <laughs> no, very not. bored woman being a sex telephone line and they thought this was like because i was the boss of, of europe the, the european office at that point and they thought this was like so hilarious and i, and I was just like yeah well this is just you know <laughs> anyway sorry i'm off on a tangent but what i was going to say is so his death he he wanted me to do stuff like help with his tours and help with his management and whatever. And then of course he died and he died leaving this amazing record um, that was part finished, that was going to be a, a set of covers of Gang of Four songs with all these like, you know, world famous musicians like Flea from the Red Hot Chili mm. Peppers and Robert Del Naja from Massive Attack and, and, you know Gary Newman and you know that's um, an incredible lineup. Ellie or Ellie Jackson Larue and um, and I I ended up having to go into the music industry and finish this album. So when you in your introduction described me as the exec producer of a of a record, it was totally against my will, and it was Andy's cosmic joke against me that I. <laughs> that I've ended up doing this um but it's a but it is a fantastic yeah what it's a great an amazing album. record yeah um it's a good joke then oh <laughs> the god irony. He, he he was the funniest man alive and now he's the funniest man dead <laughs> <laughs> um well on that there is a seamless segue coming up here because Shona's going to tell a joke no to introduce your third and final no. go on Shona sorry to disappoint all the listeners but no I'm not going to tell this joke Emily looks it. furious Emily it's our producer so is swearing you have Just to tell the so joke bad. Go on. oh my god I'll groan on behalf Catherine of May all is listeners. not going to laugh at all at this so no. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you're, the third thing that you said, Catherine, was that you th- think that everyone should make stock, mm-hmm. right? So, <laughs> Emily, you're going to have to cut this. <laughs> so Shona said that means that when we go to Catherine's house, we can take stock at the end of the evening. <laughs> She's not See? laughing, Shona. Silence. Laugh. I told you. I'm, I'm, I'm actually thinking about how if I'd spent the time making stock, I really wouldn't want to give you any to take home. <laughs> um, oh my God, you were so, appreciating so, how brilliant my joke was. I, I listen, Shona. I every day I get up and I think about your jokes, <laughs> and then you go back to bed. <laughs> um, no, uh, so in terms of making stock, yes, the world as it should be, everyone would make stock. So I make stock all the time, and what it is is on a, the only serious bit of this is that there's a two things about well there's so much wrong with food with the way people eat eat food cook food whatever you know there's too little cooking that's done there's too much processed food which is shortening lives and making people sick in all sorts of ways um and it's uh it the food industry has managed to make it cheaper to eat processed food than than unprocessed food that's healthy for you which is already a bit shocking but I mean, I basically just bloody love food and I cook all the time. And because I cook all the time and now as the widow that I am, I'm having to cook for one. I find it quite hard not to always have leftovers from everything. And I I don't like to waste food. Um, So one of the ways in which it's easier for me not to do that is for years and years, whenever I have meat or fish or vegetable scraps I will freeze them and I will then make stock out of them and the thing about making stock which is very easy to do is it's a wonderful kind of contemplative Mm. activity it uses your food scraps and it turns it into delicious broths and things that you can reduce to make sauces and Mm. it just lifts every single dish that you make um with the possible exception of sweet dishes which would be a bit weird with some of the stuff I'm talking about but any savoury dish is going to be better mm. with this and um it's how really big easy. is your freezer <laughs> well so you know back to the question about what Andy and I argued about he he didn't think that we should get a chest freezer because he said if I got a chest freezer I would put absolutely everything in it and never look at it again <laughs> And he's so right in so many ways about that. But the one thing I did after he died and once we were in lockdown is I bought a chest freezer and I have used it absolutely nonstop and it's brilliant. But before that, I just I was doing it even when I just had a normal fridge freezer with the kind of little freezer mm, drawers. Right. Um, you know, and you just have to be more disciplined and make stock more often. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, what if there was one thing about making stock that you had to point out as being your favourite thing? Is it the non-wastage? Is it the therapeutic element of the slow cooking and you know stirring? And or is it the taste of it? It's the food. I love it's eating. The eating. Yeah. I love eating. And we really want you to go on Celebrity Master. I was just going to say, Shona, this that, is where we, we have, have to pitch so many her. times. Right. So if anyone's We're listening. Have to do it. Works in TV production. Um, we we will take any email. Primadonnafestival at gmail.com. Please please email us immediately. We, <laughs> Catherine will be Catherine yeah. will win Celebrity Master Chef, and um and we'll get to eat lots of food. I imagine along that journey. Yeah. So, I also like the idea of being on Celebrity Master Chef because it's in keeping with all the other so called celebrity yeah. things. Who's she? Ha- exactly. <laughs> nobody would have the faintest idea who I was. Is. <laughs> When um, when and- when Andy and I got married, our wedding was actually in OK magazine, and one of the funniest things about it is that like the page of trying of them trying to explain who we we are at the beginning yeah. of then running ten pages of photos of our wedding. I think That's the book hilarious. launch for Charles was also in OK, wasn't it? Or well, Hello, I'm pretty sure. I, I believe I may have been in those magazines more than once, but they always but they always kind of do like you know, friend of, mm. sister of, godmother <laughs> of, um, you know. I, yeah, the, the, obviously Sandy 
Sam D. Toxvig, mm. our dear friend and co-founder of both the Women's Equality Party and Prima Donna Festival. I nowadays get often find that I am labelled friend of Sam D. Toxvig, <laughs> but I have also been labelled her wife, which um, her actual, her, which her actual wife luckily finds quite funny. Well, we simply know you as our prima prima donna, Catherine. Um, I like the fact I like as, a, as an effort to epitaph to bear in mind for the future. She's very reasonable. It's possibly one <laughs> we, we should keep away in storage. Which is actually not true because sometimes <laughs> Catherine can be vastly unreasonable. So, uh, thank you. <laughs> but we've known, but we've known Catherine before Prima Donna Festival, so it's been a known real and loved pleasure. her for a long time. Mm. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast, Catherine. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to the world as it should be. We hope it inspires you to work towards shaping the world as you think it should be. You can find out more about Prima Donna Festival by going to primadonnafestival.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. Tell your friends about us. We're on Spotify too and all good platforms. The world as it should be from Prima Donna. as it should be from Prima Donna.